Hey everybody, this is Jeff Ashkin in Los Angeles, California with Roy Cole in Jersey City, New Jersey and Derek Kester in Yokohama, Japan. And this is the podcast with a modest cast, Coast to Coast to Coast. Jeff, uh, thinking long term, uh, do you think you'll be able to keep going with the puns on the word podcast? Like how long can you keep that up? Moving on. Before we get started today, I want to give a shout out to the podcast Artistic Beginnings. Join hosts Mitch and his sister Melody as they interview filmmakers, actors, and creators of all backgrounds, discussing how to start your creative journey and navigate the business of being a creative. Artistic Beginnings is available everywhere you download your podcast. Anyway, anything funny happened to you guys this week? No. No. Man, I, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of that bit because it seems like there's never anything. I, there was something I wanted to bring up, and now I can't remember. I should have wrote it down. There was something funny that happened to me this week, and I don't remember what it was. Eh, whatever. There's some people, there, there's a comedian that has a theory that, um, uh, so he never wrote down his jokes. Like a lot of comics would write down their jokes, you know, yeah. on napkins or whatever. This comic would never write down his jokes, and his theory was, well, if I can't remember it later, then it wasn't funny enough to be in my routine. So I, so I guess whatever that. happened to you uh, wasn't that funny, or you would have yeah. remembered it. I guess that's what it is. Did you guys see that Seinfeld uh, special? That was pretty good. I have not watched it yet, but I, I probably will. My mom says to me now, like, oh, Roy reminds me of Seinfeld. I'm like, how does he remind <laughs> you of Seinfeld? Do you mean I look <laughs> like Seinfeld? I have been told I look like Seinfeld, which I don't know. I don't think that's really a compliment. I mean, I thought it's not an insult. I mean, he's nice looking. (laughs) That's even worse. It's it's like not a compliment and it's not an insult. You look like an an average, mediocre person. I I saw him in person. I thought he was I thought it was cool. But uh, now it's time for a fun fact of the day. While hipster is used these days to describe someone who tries to be stylish and trendy, the term is actually much older. According to Dictionary.com, the word was originally used, along with the similar hipster, in the 1930s to refer to someone in the jazz scene. So the the real hipsters were your grandparents. I like to imagine that that they rode around in those... uh, what do you call it? the penny farthings? You know, the bicycles with like one big wheel and one little wheel. And they just rode around with those twirling their handlebar mustaches and being like, uh, oh, Duke Ellington. Yeah, he was good when he was underground, but not so much anymore. And uh, everyone just going like, oh, the hipsters are here. <laughs> I, I bet there was people. I bet there were people who, who said the same exact thing. That conversation probably actually happened. They had uh, the guys wore T-shirts that said, like, this is what a male suffragette looks like. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, I have a Japan fun fact of the day. Okay. told me so. So uh, in Japan, as a lot of people know, um, group mentality is generally more highly uh, valued than individual mentality. And meanings are usually implied rather than explicit. 
And in a group setting, there are many ways that people are expected to behave without having saying anything explicitly. And in fact, there's a phrase for people who are unable to pick up on the social cues or pay enough attention to a given situation to be able to act as society expects them to act. The phrase is kuki o yomenai, which literally means unable to read the air. Cool. And the reason I bring that up is because it leads us to the first topic that I wanted to discuss, which was, do you think it's possible to be successful, uh, maybe in a business or in your career, but still remain a good, modest person? Did you guys have any thoughts on that topic? I did. Roy, do you want to go first? I... I can. I have some thoughts, but I wanted to understand the crux of the question. Is it uh, like people, they start out good, but then once they become massively successful, that it's no longer possible to retain their humanity? Or, or are you saying that the characteristics required to become massively successful uh, are usually like a like being opportunistic and and being ruthless. And so those are the types of people who become successful. I I wasn't sure which one of those you're driving at. Well, the reason it's uh, uh, ambiguous is because I think both of them hold true. Um, When I was, and this is not my previous job, my current job, this is with regard to my previous job that I had uh, many years ago. Um, I was out to dinner with some of my coworkers. This is in Japan. And when we were talking, one of them revealed something to me that I didn't really believe at the time. He's and this I had just graduated from college and I had just I was like very um like green, you know, very naive about how the world worked, I guess. So I went out to this dinner with uh my co- colleagues and my colleague said um every person at every company who has any sort of authoritative position is someone who is unable to read the air, to borrow the phrase that I just mentioned. And I said, well, that's not true. What about, you know, so-and-so, the boss of this division? And he said, he he can't read the air. And I said, what about this person? He he can read the air. He, he always knows how to act in a social setting. And he said, well, he chooses not to. So if you're going to become one of those um, people in, in someone who has authority, you either are born without those characteristics or you choose to ignore them, which leads you to be, to borrow your words, to be ruthless in some ways, basically to just ignore someone's feelings or emotions or to ignore how you will be perceived after the fact to to get what you want. And in order to be able to rise to a situation of authority, you need to have that ruthlessness or whether inherently or you just need to like shut off your human your humanity in order to be able to rise. And the people who don't do that or or are unable to do that get trampled on by the people who do. And as I progressed in my career here, 
and even moved to different companies, I found that actually it, it was true for the most part. So what did you guys think? Well, uh, that, uh, you want to go, Jeff? No, no, you first, you first. I mean, that, that's a very fascinating discussion that you had with your colleagues early on. Uh, I guess um, it's interesting. I understand where that sentiment comes from. And, and there's the whole cliche of nice guys finish last and all mm -hmm. that. But uh, I don't know. My personal experience has kind of been the opposite. And especially like in America, well, I'm not, I'm not going to just uh, make it specific to America. But, you know, you have to have a lot of what they call soft skills, right? That's the word they use here um, to kind of rise up in companies. Like it's not enough to be um, sort of technically proficient, but you need to be good with people and good with handling people. And I don't, for me, it's probably the reason that I will never rise up to be CEO of any company because I, I just um, I don't care to, to like. I don't care about all the pleasantries, like the pleasantries or the sort of small talk that, that you have to engage in to, uh, to kind of make people feel comfortable around you. Um, I, I just bypass all of that. But when I think of like my CEOs and, and the people high up at the companies I work for, they did have those skills where like if you went out for them for a group dinner or whatever, they made everybody feel comfortable and, and they made everybody feel welcome um and to me that that was like an essential quality that they needed in order to become ceo or in order to rise up in the company um but i i understand where the sentiment comes from but i personally haven't seen much of a correlation in one direction or another which is to say that i've met plenty of very successful people in the business world mostly uh, that were also incredible human beings and very uh, magnanimous and, and charitable people um, and very um, very charitable with their time right not not just like giving money but like actually donating their time um, and on the flip side, I have known plenty of unsuccessful people who were assholes, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I've also known some successful people that were jerks, and, and I, there's plenty of unsuccessful people who are good people. But I guess my point is I don't see much predictive value. I, I don't see where if somebody is successful that, that I'm able to predict that they're like this ruthless sociopathic person I, I haven't observed much of a correlation. Um, and I think it's, it's a little sad to me that that, that association exists because I, I wonder if people are uh, coloring their views of successful people without getting to know them. Yeah, I'm with Roy on this one. I feel like, especially, I mean, I'm gonna have to say though, because my experience with, with people who have, Successful people has only been really has only been in America. I know people who are successful who are self-made millionaires, 
and they still maintain a, a level of modesty about them and they know that they uh, are a, a lot of times they'll just say like oh i got lucky and things worked out in my favor or they'll try to downplay it and then sometimes they'll you know and sometimes they might get too far into themselves and then become sociopathic there is a statistic i believe it's just like 12% of ceos are sociopathic but i i just don't <laughs> I don't. What know. percent of regular people are sociopathic? Yeah, exactly. Is it much less yeah. than twelve percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel though that you can still remain like a modest, uh, like a humble person. I mean, just an example. I, I think Tom Hanks, who is, I'd say, very, very successful in his career, he's very he's well right. liked. <laughs> he's doing okay. No, just he's, he's very well liked. And people always tell me he's a nice guy. I I have been lucky to, to I've met him a couple of times myself, and he's he is I I got the impression he was very nice to me. I mean I think it really depends on who you surround yourself with. Well, um, last time we talked about luck, right? I think anything right. can happen to anyone. Um, so there's always going to be outliers. Right. Um, it is good to think like what what Roy said and Jeff, what you also reinforced was that it's possible for people who are good people at heart to remain good people and still become successful. I just, I wonder if that's more of the exception than the rule. Uh, I don't think, I get what you're saying, but I, I think you can be someone that demands results. Demand is a strong word. Well, no, I'll stick with that. Demand results, but still be a good person. I think maybe the problem is that people associate demanding bosses as not good people um mm -hmm. but i don't associate those qualities together and uh, i think there are i think the bosses i work for are good people who expect competence and expect mm -hmm. results and they will fire you uh, if you don't produce and maybe some people think that that's not empathetic um, but then they have to think of like they have to think of the company, and like if they fail as a company, then everybody fails, right? There's no company, and everyone's out of a job. So they ultimately have to think about the company because that's what everybody is relying on. Um, so I think maybe sometimes that gets mixed up. That message, like, well, if you fire people, you like you have to be ruthless to fire people. Um, but I think you can kind of be, you could have expectations of your, your employees and still be a good person. I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like Roy said, uh, you, you have to look at it from, yeah, I see it from both sides. I mean, as someone on a very, 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 very small scale, I've run uh, a film set and I work with people who I, I hired and I paid to do a job. And even though some of them were, were good people and I liked working with them, sometimes they wouldn't show up. And it's like, okay, I know and I, I like you as a, as a person, but I have to make this film in a certain schedule. And if you're not doing what I need you to do, I have to get somebody else. It's nothing personal. It's just ha you have to make those decisions. And mm -hmm. it's not that you know you lack empathy for the person, but you have to think about 
what's the overall goal you're doing. And anyone who's run a business will tell you the same. I mean, you, you just, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, try to save it. Everybody, you can't try to, to be, a, to be everyone's best friend. You just, you're going to end up being miserable on to topic two. Okay. So now on for the main, the main event here, because this, you know, who cares about success, whatever. This is the more important topic. We had we we thought about it all week. Well, actually, wait, five days ago, I think I posted this, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, topic two is what is the best video game of all time for the home console market? Now it's a broad question, so try to limit your answer to one game that you couldn't stop playing and change your life for the better. Or I'm gonna I obviously I feel that this could be uh, a multiple answered question. So. Who wants to go first? Well, me, I currently work in the video game industry. And played a, a fairly major role in my life. So uh had a lot to think about for this topic. I narrowed it down to my top three. Um, so I could divulge my choices. Please. Um, first of all, my number three is Tetris Attack, which is not Tetris. It's uh, it's a competitive type of game that uses similar um, like blocks, kind of like Tetris, but it's not exactly like Tetris. I got to tell you. you I've never... Sorry, go ahead. Tetris Attack. Have you heard of it? Oh yeah, no. I, I honestly, I really thought I was going to guess your your choices, and that was not one I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, That's my number three, yeah. my number three is Tetris Attack. I spent uh, many, many, many hundreds of hours playing this game against my friends, and my number two is Goldeneye for N sixty four. And uh, my number one, however, which I consider the greatest video game of all time, is Final Fantasy six, which is known as Final Fantasy three in the United States. Um, right. Wait, was that yeah. Super Nintendo, right? Yep, Super Nintendo. Um, how do you feel about Super Nintendo, Derek? What? How do, how do feel I feel about it? Super Nintendo? Yeah. I think Super Nintendo is the greatest home console of all time. As far as, um, obviously not as far as capabilities or performance goes, but as far as like the technology available at the time and... Um, the qual- the overall quality of the games released right um and also i guess you you could consider the improvement from what was previously available to what became available with the release of super nintendo i think it is the greatest console of all time and a lot of my favorite games so i made a list in thinking about this i made a list of my top 100 actually and a lot of them were from <laughs> super nintendo of course i'm going to work your way down <laughs> yeah Derek can you talk about uh, what makes Final Fantasy 6 your top game yeah so um, it's an RPG a role playing game um, obviously from the Final Fantasy series um, I just what I think separates 6 from the others is um, the depth of the storytelling is just um, so much more advanced than anything that had come before it. It feels like you're playing through a novel or a movie, um, 
I just, I remember just feeling so involved in the story and there's so much, just the way the game is balanced, all of the depth of the characters. Uh, there's, I think, 14 playable characters that you can find. And there's just so much to explore, so much, um, so much to enjoy. It just kept me busy for so many, so many hours. And I played through the game several times, both in English and in Japanese. And I just, I don't think any game has ever surpassed it. All right. Roy, you want to jump in? Sure. Well, so like Derek, I, I compiled a, a list of my top three. And well, to be honest, um, <laughs> this kind of kills my list because I also had Final Fantasy VI as my number one. Oh, no. Uh, without no. consulting with Derek beforehand, like I had no idea he would pick that at all. Um, but uh, I echo all the same uh, thoughts that Derek expressed. Just the amazing depth of the characters. What's crazy is, like you said, there's, I think, 14 characters. Mm -hmm. And each one of them, <laughs> just their story alone for an individual character is so compelling. Mm -hmm. You could make like a full-length movie on just mm -hmm. one of the characters. And there's 14 of them. Yeah, and they all have very distinct story arcs, mm -hmm. and then the game manages to blend all those story arcs together. Yeah, and um, it almost feels like a like a modern day epic, like you talk of yeah. of like the Odyssey or the Iliad, you know, those types of mm -hmm. like a hero coming to to save the kingdom. It has that sort of vibe to it. Um, and yeah, the storylines were just amazingly rich, and um, and the music is just insanely good. Um, I know, Derek, you uh, you actually went to a concert, like a, cl a classical music concert from the composer of those games, right? Um, actually, no, I did oh. something better. Um, <laughs> I, I went to um, the composer Nobu. Nobu Uematsu's house um, okay. <laughs> through a complete random happenstance situation. I was invited to his house. Um, I interviewed him and uh, they did a <laughs> I'm getting all um, giddy thinking about it. They did a rehearsal of a concert that they were about to give in his downstairs like soundproof cellar that he has built into his house and i just like sat in for that wow okay almost like a so backstage pass yeah and i had actually uh several years before that happened i had just as an interesting thought exercise i wrote down the top 10 people that i living people that i wish i could meet at some point in my life and he was one of them and i actually got to meet him and and uh, converse with him so that was really cool a little side story but uh, to get back um, to the game, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I think the music is is really good, but the game as well. The what you said, Roy. The, the other cool thing about the story, which I didn't mention, and which when I was a kid playing this game for the first time, which really um, shook me, was what halfway through the game, if you remember, um, when I thought I was about to beat the game, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the game like kind of um, resets itself in a way. Like the whole world gets destroyed. Yeah, and you have to yeah. find all of the characters again. Yeah, it becomes like this dystopian adventure all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that was the end of the game because I put in so many hours. It was, it, a normal game would have ended by that time, but that was just like the midway point. Where yeah. you have to find everyone again, but everyone's different because the world is completely different. Um, just so, just uh, such a cool story uh, plot twist. Uh, sorry if you are still in the middle of your description of the game. No, that was good. That was a great um, uh, add-on to uh, to why uh, I like uh, Final Fantasy VI. Um, so that would be my top choice. But I'll uh, quickly mention uh, the other two that were on my list. Tune in for part two of our discussion on video games and our reviews next week. Thanks for joining us.